If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Please be advised that the descriptions in this podcast are graphic. This is Chapter 3 of Blood and Truth, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Today, Trial and Errors. I'm Leonora LaPeter Anton. This story is about a man who has served 42 years on Florida's death row. He says he's innocent. For more than two decades, he's been asking the state to allow for complete DNA tests of the evidence in his case. Florida keeps saying no. On December 29, 1975, Tommy Ziegler was arrested in his hospital bed, where he was recovering from a gunshot wound to the stomach. He was charged with the murders of his wife, in-laws, and a customer of his family's furniture store. A few weeks later, following a preliminary hearing, a judge released him on a $40,000 bond. Ziegler's family drew confidence from this. They found it odd that the police didn't question the family about Ziegler at all. And if the judge didn't think there was enough evidence to keep a man accused of four murders in jail, there was hope. Connie Crawford, Ziegler's cousin, still lives in Winter Garden. Ziegler's mother, Beulah, and her father were siblings. Connie and Tommy grew up together and spent lots of weekends at a lake house with their families. She was there that day Ziegler walked into his house for the first time after his release from jail. He greeted the couple's five Persians, Silver, Scooter, Fluff, Little Mon, and Misty. He picked each one of them up and, and hugged them and petted them because he knew he was going to have to do something with the cats. Crawford did not believe her cousin was guilty. She'd known him to be mischievous, a prankster, and he liked to be in control, but he wasn't violent. She just couldn't imagine that he'd done what he was accused of. Tommy was an only child. He had anything he wanted, but he was never a selfish child. And I don't ever remember him being cruel or, or mean. Days after being released from custody, Ziegler's lawyers whisked him away to an office in St. Petersburg for an interrogation with something they called truth serum. Here's Terry Hadley, one of Ziegler's attorneys. And Tommy didn't know what we were doing. 
we asked him, he was down on, on jail, out of jail on bond between the preliminary hearing and the return of the indictment. And we said, Tom, we need you to come to our office and bring a change of clothes. And he said, what for? He said, just do what we tell you to do. So he got there and we said, here's what we're going to do. And if you want us to stay on your defense team, you're going to do it for us. He said, no problem. I went over and did it. And we were, we were looking, we were then as we still are, trying to find the truth. Ziegler was injected with sodium brevitol. It has not been accepted by the courts as a trustworthy technique, and it would not be allowed in Ziegler's trial either. Ziegler repeated what he told police, that he'd been hit over the head and struggled with two attackers. It's the same story he's been telling for 42 years. What follows is the audio recording from that 1976 session, used here by permission from psychiatrist Theodore Mackler, who conducted the test. Ziegler's voice sounds like he's talking while half asleep. They grabbed me and they threw me off the wall. They threw me into the refrigerators. What are you feeling while this is happening? Just being bounced around. There was glass breaking. They threw me down the hallway. Then they grabbed me and they threw me into a rug rack. I hit the floor. Another man shot me. Another man? Can you see him? Just a blur. Three months after the murders, a grand jury met to decide whether Ziegler should be indicted. Don Fry took the stand in Orlando in March 1976. Fry, remember, was the young detective assigned to the case. He had quickly zeroed in on Ziegler. The grand jury could see gory pictures of the victims on an easel and a reproduction of the furniture store complete with miniature furniture on a table. One of the investigators in Prosecutor Robert Egan's office had made the scale model of the store. Fry talked about what he'd found at the crime scene. Fry has died, so I wasn't able to catch up with him to discuss the case. Here he is in 1989 on a national TV program about Ziegler's case called A Matter of Life and Death. Reese Schoenfeld, a producer of the show and co-founder of CNN and the Food Network, granted us permission to use audio from the show. You think Tommy Ziegler premeditated these murders? Oh, there's no question. There, there is absolutely no question about that. I've worked, uh, I can't tell you how many homicide cases, death cases of uh, suicides, natural deaths. I have never been more convinced uh, of all the cases I have worked. In front of the grand jury, Fry also discussed rumors and gossip. Nothing he said went challenged that day. But the transcript of his grand jury testimony is fascinating. It evokes a different era when homosexual men and women were ostracized and even a hint of someone being gay could destroy a reputation. Here's how Fry described Ziegler's upbringing. Tommy was a child brought up by a dominant mother, Fry said. I have talked to people in Winter Garden, friends and confidential informants. I can't reveal the names. I have got one that is really close to the family. They said that Tommy Ziegler is highly capable of this. This is the type of pattern of a man who is brought up by a passive father and a dominant mother. Today, that kind of assumption likely wouldn't make it into testimony. And Fry went on and on. He brought up the rumors that Ziegler was a homosexual. I'm reading again from his testimony captured in the court transcript. 
I haven't been able to prove or disprove that. You will note that each of the men are beaten, but none of the women are. Why is this so? Schools that I have been to say that this act can be interpreted as that of a homosexual, a man trying to be a bisexual. During the time he committed the beatings all inside him, he's saying, I'm a man. You see, I'm a man. I've got power. This can also be considered as retaliation of the mother, trying to break from the mother. This rumor that Ziegler was gay has never been proven, and Ziegler has always denied it. But here he describes the implications of that rumor. Well, that back in those days, that would kill you. That would destroy you faster than anything in the world. Fry had even more to say about the suspect. Fry said that Ziegler cut off his dog's leg to play a joke, that he'd tried to drown his father in a lake, that he'd purposely set fire to a barn in a house to collect insurance money. None of it was true, according to Ziegler's friends and family. The detective did not tell the grand jury about weaknesses in the case, about how they had not been able to connect Ziegler to some of the physical evidence, including the guns or the footprints or a glove tip spotted with blood. That had turned out to be furniture polish. Or that the prosecutor had written a letter to the Orange County Sheriff's Office saying he was very concerned with the crime scene processing, particularly with the handling of the blood evidence. Many samples had been too small to subtype, Egan had written, meaning they would not be able to distinguish whose blood it was. The blood and all the other evidence had been sent to the FBI for tests. At the time, subtyping had to be completed within two weeks or the information was lost forever. After two days of testimony, the grand jury indicted Ziegler on four counts of murder setting in motion what would become one of the most unusual and high-profile murder trials in state history. Hadley, one of Ziegler's attorneys, had the job of trying to figure out what happened that night. He was searching for the truth, but there were so many contradictory statements, so many witnesses, so many discrepancies. It was like working through a maze. Some people were connected, some were not. Each had a different story many of them canceling each other out. At least 51 people had seen or heard something near the Ziegler Furniture Store that Christmas Eve. Here's Hadley. Because the one thing I know for certain is I don't know everything that happened in that store that night. That, that's the only total 100 complete certainty I have is I don't know everything that went on in that store that night. I believe with all my heart that Tommy Ziegler is innocent, but that's a belief. Based upon, I think, solid evidence, but it's a belief. Hadley had to work fast. The defense team was trying to follow the evidence and chase down rumors. They were waiting for lab results. But Judge Maurice Paul refused to delay the case three different times. I mean, you know, now to get cases to trial, these judges are just jammed. You look at their dockets and, you know, how long it takes just to get an ordinary hearing. So back then, the system was much faster. The case went to trial only 42 days after the indictment. Days before the trial was to begin, defense attorneys received a list of more than 100 additional witnesses and some of the evidence they wanted to have examined. It was too fast for this case because of the complexity, which is why I think we should have been granted a continuance. I still believe that, because we had evidence that we developed after the trial that would have been very helpful. They knew, for instance, that the gun residue test on Edward Williams' pants pocket wouldn't be ready in time. Williams, Ziegler's handyman and the primary witness against him, had told police that Ziegler tried to shoot him, then handed Williams the gun when it jammed. Williams died in 2007. 
Here's him recounting his testimony for that TV show, A Matter of Life and Death, produced in 1989. He said, here, here the gun. Take the gun. Williams said he put the gun in his pocket. If his story was true, gun residue from the revolver would have left traces in his pocket. If there was no gunshot residue on Williams' pockets, he'd likely changed his clothes. He'd lied. We asked for a continuance and were denied because we knew, we, first of all, we knew we were developing uh, this gun residue test and we knew it wouldn't be ready. And we specifically asked for continuance on that basis. And Judge Paul denied it, moved the trial. This was like on a Friday, and we started the trial on Monday in Jacksonville. And this was known, go find yourself a hotel. He liked it because he, he had a condo up there at the beach. The murders had gotten a lot of news coverage in Orlando. But in Jacksonville, 140 miles to the northeast, few people had heard about Tommy Ziegler. Remember, it's 1976, no internet. Still, it took two weeks to seat the jury. Robert Egan, the prosecutor, doesn't remember how many cases his office was working on along with Ziegler's, but the trial prep for him was uneventful. There was a girl in my office that was uh, sharp and very um, interested in, in the cases, the legal aspects of it and the facts and so forth. And she had written a number of little cards and I had a card for each witness, and I had one or two words as to important parts for that witness. So all I did is pull out the card and take them through it. The trial dragged early on as Egan questioned more than a dozen law enforcement officers who identified mounds of bullets, cartridges, guns, bloody clothes, and gory photographs. The surgeon who treated Ziegler testified that a 357 bullet passed four finger breadths from his navel. It had skimmed his abdominal cavity, missed the liver, and exited his back. It was not a life-threatening injury, but the surgeon, under cross-examination, said it could have caused major damage. Crawford, Ziegler's cousin, came to the trial just about every day. She and other family members were confident he would be found not guilty but she often found herself wanting to speak up about the details being presented to the jury. When they tried to tell me that Tommy Ziegler knew how to stand just perfectly and take a 357 and shoot himself so he would not hit any vital organs, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Nobody can do that. And there, uh, the, according to the state, he was a medic in the... Army reserves couldn't be further from the truth. He was a supply sergeant. Prosecutors called to the stand a man named Herbert McDonnell, a criminalist who taught classes at Elmira College in Corning, New York. McDonnell was a blood spatter expert who had consulted on the assassinations of both Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. He would later gain fame by testifying in the O.J. Simpson case. Fry, the lead detective, had participated in a week-long blood spatter class taught by McDonnell, 
and Fry had held the crime scene for two weeks until McDonald could arrive. Again, something that wouldn't happen today. McDonald had spent eight hours and five minutes on January 7, 1976, following bloody trails, smears, and streaks. McDonald didn't respond to me when I reached out to him months ago, but here he is on that old TV program describing what he saw. Is there any doubt in your mind that Tommy Ziegler did this? None whatsoever. The evidence is that clear? No doubt. No doubt in my mind at all. McDonald says the evidence indicates there was no band of robbers who killed the victims in a gunfight. McDonald says the first to die was Tommy's wife, Eunice, who was taken by surprise. This is where Mr. Ziegler came up behind his wife, right here, and fired the shot to the back of her head. She was not anticipating the shot. She had her hand in the pocket of her overcoat, more or less like a woman walking through a department store on her way out. McDonald testified that he'd made copies of Ziegler's shoe print on onion skin paper and compared it with a bloody footprint found near the bodies. Though he couldn't be certain, he thought it likely that Ziegler's shoe left the print. That contradicted an FBI expert who had earlier testified that it couldn't have been Ziegler's print, it was the wrong shoe size. Ziegler's lawyers protested the introduction of McDonald's analysis, which had not been provided to them until that moment in the trial. Judge Paul allowed it. Hadley and Ziegler both had a history with Paul. Six months before the trial, Hadley had defended a black bar owner who had been accused of selling marijuana to a state beverage agent. The man was in jeopardy of losing the coveted liquor license that had been in his family for decades. Ziegler believed in the man and helped Hadley line up witnesses from the black community. Paul, who'd been an attorney for Florida's beverage department, testified to the agent's character. There was a lot of animosity over the affair. CBS journalist Ike Pappas investigated Ziegler's story for A Matter of Life and Death, the show that aired 14 years after the murders in Winter Garden. Pappas, who died in 2008, said Ziegler had made a lot of other important people in town mad, too. Why would anyone want to murder Tommy Ziegler? Well, for one thing, he was involved in attempting to clean up corruption right here in his hometown of Winter Garden. For example, he was helpful in shutting down this place, the old Edgewater Hotel, which was a center of prostitution and drug dealing. But he was also trying to gather information on other illegal activities, such as gun running and, most importantly, loan sharking. The loan sharks made a fortune letting migrant workers buy groceries on credit at an interest rate of 520% a year. And Tommy Ziegler alleges certain members of the Winter Garden Police Force were in on the action. Hadley asked Judge Paul to recuse himself from Ziegler's case, but he refused. Hadley had been a military judge in Vietnam before working as a prosecutor. Let me tell you something. We, I've tried a lot of cases. I've never had a case where every one of my objections was overruled. Tommy Ziegler was the last of 111 witnesses to take the stand. He was pale and thin and wore thick glasses. He spoke calmly and showed little emotion as he described his life before the murders. The courtroom was packed with 120 spectators, and the crowd quietly listened. Ziegler explained that he purchased insurance on his wife's life on the advice of his personal lawyer, who had testified to that earlier. The recommendation had come because of his father's stroke the previous July. Ziegler had become the company president. He bought separate policies from different agencies, said, because they were both customers. Prosecutors had made money one of the motives of the crime, but the furniture store and the apartment building Ziegler managed were successful. 
the businesses were worth about a million dollars. Ziegler described how he and his wife were supposed to meet the Winter Garden police chief and his wife to drive to the annual party of a local municipal judge that Christmas Eve. Ziegler and the police chief, Don Fickey, were friends. Ziegler said he'd gone first to make some last-minute deliveries when he was attacked at the store. On cross-examination, Egan, the prosecutor, pointed out that a lot of people had to be lying for Ziegler to be telling the truth. Ziegler held firm to his story. He retold what happened during an interview on death row. We spent the day in sales and delivery for Christmas. Uh, We closed between 6 and 6.30. I went home, and um, Eunice and her mother and dad were supposed to have gone down by the store earlier when it was open uh, to pick out a recliner chair for the Edwardses for Christmas. And one of our cats was sick. So Eunice broke her schedule, (laughs) took the cat to Dr. Ashley's, Gibbs Ashley, the veterinarians. And uh, this threw their schedule off and they didn't get to the store before it closed. So she and her mother and father went back to the store on their way to the uh, candlelight Christmas service at church. That's what they were doing in the store that night. They were not supposed to be there. It was just supposed to be Edward Williams and I that were, were going to be there. If she had gone on and, and not take the cat to the vet, uh, they wouldn't have been there. Ziegler said Edward Williams was going to help him deliver a gas grill to Ziegler's parents as a Christmas gift. And there was a delivery to the police chief's house, a plant for Ficky's wife. And they were also going to get the lazy boy for his in-laws. I had known Edward um, since the late 50s. He, uh, he was a Bahamian, and um, he was a customer of ours for years. He was, a, he was an excellent Finnish carpenter. The man was just fantastic as a Finnish carpenter. He had worked for me for, in, in the apartments uh, for, I guess, uh, five, six, seven, maybe seven years. And he was, he was the type of an individual that I could tell him what I wanted. And uh, he would uh, go pick up a key from the office and go do what he was supposed to do. He had our whole family's trust. That's what he was doing with me that night. Ziegler says he doesn't know why Williams accused him, but he told the jury that the night didn't go as Williams testified. When we got to the store um, that night, I came in the hallway from the back parking lot, and he was backing his truck up to the uh, the big overhead door that opened up to take these items out. When I walked down that hallway and walked into the back of the store, into the um, back showroom, I got hit over the back of the head and knocked down. And with that, I lost my glasses. And if you'd like to look through them, you're welcome to. I'm blind as a bat without them. From there on, I was, I was being tossed around. And when I say being tossed around, like I say, I weighed 165 pounds back in those days, and I was in great shape. And uh, it was like throwing a ball on the wall, bouncing back. Tell you the truth, I was just scared to death. I wasn't thinking about what was happening to me. I was scared to death. I had been carrying um, a 22 Colt Escort, and I had it. It was in a trousers holster. 
You could actually put it, the, the belt on the trousers would actually cover it. It was so small. I fired one time and it jammed. And then my, my game was over. I threw it. I, I remember throwing that gun. And why I threw it, I don't know. I might, I might have been better off to just drop the thing and run like hell, but I couldn't. I had a 357 Magnum that was at the, in a desk drawer in the uh, door coming out of that hallway. I got that Magnum, and I can't tell you whether that I shot that Magnum or not. I know that it was so close and they were on me so much I was swinging it. Then I was shot. And the next thing I knew, I was waking up, trying to find my glasses. I got to, I got to the private office and got a pair of glasses that was there on the desk. And then what'd you do? I called Judge Vandeventer's home. I knew that they, we were supposed to be there and I knew everybody that was gonna be there. And I knew I could get some quick help from there. Ziegler described being injured. Yes, ma'am, I felt that gunshot when it hit me. It was like a hot poker being driven through you. There was like a flash, just, a, just very quick. One day toward the end of the trial, Egan, the prosecutor, walked into the court carrying a small wooden tree made with cup hooks. He had decorated it with the guns police had found at the store. He would take each gun off the tree as he connected it in some way to Ziegler. Four belonged to Ziegler, who carried one in a holster and kept the others in various locations for protection. Edward Williams, Ziegler's handyman, had testified that Ziegler had asked him for two, quote, hot guns, six months before the killings. Williams, remember, had shown up at the Winter Garden Police Department that Christmas Eve 1975 with one of the murder weapons, which he said had jammed after Ziegler tried to shoot him at the furniture store. Williams and Felton Thomas, who would come forward after the murders to say that he was at the store that night with Charlie Mays to pick up a television set, gave the testimony that was the most damaging to Ziegler. Thomas's story about traveling to the Orange Grove to shoot the guns made it seem as if Ziegler had gotten the other men's prints on the guns to try and frame them. But as Ziegler's attorney would point out, the guns had mostly been wiped clean. Did you feel like they were telling the truth? No, Mr. Williams especially didn't. Why? Because his story didn't match what we knew were the facts. And Felton Thomas, we thought was crazy because he was talking about driving through a brick wall and parking out behind the fence just to go get a TV. Their story didn't make sense. They had a psychiatrist analyze Williams for body language during his deposition. He was telling us all kinds of things, but none of it was admissible. He said, the guy's just lying. You know, he, he was looking, reading the nonverbal things he was saying. He said every time Edward Williams would start a lie, he would start it with the phrase, Mr. Tommy. Mr. Tommy did this. Mr. Tommy, instead of giving us a, a, a flow, it would be Mr. Tommy did this, Mr. Tommy did that, which was one of the things, candidly, that killed us at trial because we had a number of African-Americans on the jury and to them, it sounded like the classic white-black interaction, the old Southern interaction. I asked Hadley what he thought really happened. How was Edward Williams involved? I'll be honest with you, I could never pin it down. The only thing I could figure is that he was in cahoots with Charlie Mays, that there was something going on there. But Edward Williams was a convincing witness. I mean, he, he was a convincing witness. And had I not caught him 
in things that I could absolutely prove were totally not true. Didn't happen, couldn't have happened. You know, I would have been saying, wow. But the more we dug, the more his testimony frayed. But that didn't mean that it was not convincing it was. Here's what the prosecutor, Robert Egan, had to say about Williams. I don't think Edward had enough sense to lie about it. I don't think he, he, knew, he didn't know enough to lie about it. That was my judgment, but I challenge anybody to prove he was lying. That's, that's, that's the only thing they can, that's the only answer, is that all these people who did not know each other were all lying. In his closing argument, Egan said Ziegler shot himself to mask his crime. Williams, his handyman, had escaped. So had Felton Thomas, the fruit picker. Four people were dead. He'd killed Eunice first. He'd grabbed his father-in-law, Perry Edwards Sr., in a headlock and smashed him in the head with a metal crank used to unwind linoleum. He'd shot Edwards four times. He'd also shot and bludgeoned Mays and killed Eunice's mother. Then Ziegler had shot himself because he had no other choice. His shooting himself was, was, was pure desperation. That's what caused him to shoot himself. It was just the pure death. He, he, was, he was trapped. He was caught. Hadley argued that the state's story of Ziegler luring three black men to the store on Christmas Eve so he could kill his wife and in-laws was preposterous. Why would a man who planned to go to a Christmas party with the police chief and his wife conceive such a plot? But he was worried. We dressed him in coat and tie every morning. But Tommy, and one of the things that made his testimony difficult is he projected no emotion from the witness stand. He, he doesn't come through. That's why I say he's a hard man to get to be close to. I'm close to him now, but, and we got close to him then, but it's not an easy task. He, he's when he's contained people and he does not display a lot of emotion. And things weren't going Ziegler's way. Let me tell you, it, this was an unfair trial from its first day forward. It really was. After closing arguments, the decision rested with jurors. They filed into a long, windowless room. They had more than 200 pieces of evidence, including the guns found at the store. They would be there for almost three days. On the next episode of Blood and Truth. You know, frankly, we'd have had a hung jury if the judge hadn't agreed to get one of the jurors some dope. Catch up with the earlier episodes of this podcast on major hosting platforms. And if you like the series, please rate and review us on iTunes. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.